Here we are. We are uh, in the middle of a three-week mini-series in the Gospel of Luke, and we're walking through what I believe is the greatest parable uh, Jesus ever taught. Now, there's no list. There's no, like, uh, best of or top ten uh, that you're going to find. They're all amazing, the parables that Jesus teaches. Uh, that is my personal opinion. I feel like time and time again, I've come back to the parable of the prodigal son and seen something deeper, something richer. Um, and so uh, today's uh, very futile attempt is going to be for me to try to cram it all in, <laughs> in one sermon as we talk about the older son today. Um, and so it's going to be impossible, and it really takes a lifetime to continue to go back to this story again and again, to hear what Jesus wanted us to hear in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Now, if you are new to Jesus, you're just joining us, Jesus uh, would often teach uh, with parables. And so what is a parable? A parable is simply a short story uh, that Jesus told to illustrate a deeper truth about God. And Jesus begins this parable in Luke 15 by saying this, there was a man who had two sons. Today, this is a story about a man, a father, and his love for his two sons. Both sons are lost. Both need to be found. Last week, uh, we talked about the heart of the Father. And we spent a whole Sunday focusing on the disposition of the heart of the Father towards his boys. The love that he has for both of his kids. Today, we will focus on the older son. And next week, we'll focus on the younger son. But today, I want to ask you, are you the older son. And as we read Jesus' parables, you don't need to take that literally as literally the first in the order of birth in your family and being a male, right? The older son is a type of person. It's a type of person that Jesus is describing. You could be a man or a woman, young or old, birth order doesn't matter. It could be any of us in the room. Older sons, according to Jesus, are a certain type of person. They're the ones who do the right thing. They show up. They're very moral. They try their best to be moral. They're good citizens. They work hard. But one day, one day, we find ourselves far from the love of God. Flannery O'Connor is, I think, one of my favorite authors. She uh, lived in the South, and she wrote in the 1950s and 60s. She loved Jesus, and a lot of her works are uh, very interesting. <laughs> but anyway, she wrote, she wrote lots of short stories, and one short story she wrote is called Revelation. She wrote it in 1964 as she was battling lupus, and that year she actually died. But here in her final year of life, she writes this story about a woman named Mrs. Turpin. Mrs. Turpin, I'm going to tell you the story because she is an older son, as it were. Mrs. Turpin is a white Christian woman from the South. She's respectable. She's a rule follower. She's a churchgoer. And she's very well-mannered. She is waiting in a, a waiting room in a doctor's office. 
And most of the short story takes place in this doctor's office. Waiting in the waiting room, she sees a variety of people around her. And she notices that all the people around her are beneath her. There's a young black teenager. There's a couple she considers white trash. There's an angry college student across from her. And there's a poor woman and her sick child. And Mrs. Turpin spends most of the short story judging them out loud and in her mind, looking at all those who are beneath her. And, and she doesn't always do this overtly. She just feels proud of herself, that she has worked hard, that she knows the truth, that she has done well in life, and she's not in the position any of these other people are in. Mary Grace is the name of the college student who's sitting across from her in the waiting room. And Mary Grace has had enough of Mrs. Turpin's behavior, of her judgmentalism. And like any good college student, she's about to fly off the handle with some justice. <laughs> and she takes her book and she throws it across the waiting room and nails Mrs. Turpin in the face with her book. Then she leaps across the table and starts attacking her. She tries to choke Mrs. Turpin. And Mrs. Turpin is just flustered. She's, she can't believe what just had happened to her. She leaves the office. And she goes home and she's just shaking and just does not know why she was attacked like that. And she starts to wonder if this is a message from God. And so that evening at home, the story ends as she finds herself feeding pigs. It's interesting bit of an allusion to the prodigal son story. And she's in such a low moment, and there she is, she's feeding these pigs, and, and then she just lashes out at God. And almost as though she's echoing the book of Job, she looks up at God and says, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to let them treat me this way? What have I done? Why would you let this college girl embarrass me like that? Why would you allow someone like her to treat someone like me in such a terrible way? And almost in answer to her prayers, she sees a vision. And the story ends as she looks out on a field and she sees this purple road rising up into the heavens. And in this kind of epiphany vision, at the front of the line, she sees this vast amount of people headed into heaven. Hundreds and hundreds of people headed into heaven. And at the front of the line, she sees what she calls, quote, battalions of freaks and lunatics. They're at the front of the line. Black people, people she calls white trash, those on the margins, the poor, all those she looks down upon, they're at the front of the line. And in the back of the line on their way to heaven, in shock, she sees a whole lot of people like her. Proper white Southerners, self-righteous, walking in the back. And those at the front are singing hallelujah. And those at the back of the line, not so much. And O'Connor writes, Mrs. Turpin could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. 
that even their virtues were being burned away. And the first will be last and the last will be first. And Mrs. Turpin is an older son. She's bitter. She's angry. She has done the right thing her whole life and now this? God, why are you treating me this way? God, who do you think you are? So I would like to welcome all the older sons and all the Mrs. Turpins in the room to the prodigal son story. I want to welcome all the rule followers, the ones who wake up every day and do the right thing. I want to welcome all of you who are on the edge of burnout. I want to welcome all of you who are deeply disappointed with God. I want to welcome those of you in the room who've worked your hands to the bone while your heart has grown cold. And to all of those who grew up being told we were good kids. But today, years later, we find ourselves far from the love of God. I believe something is planned for you today. I believe God has a word for you today. And so God, would you come and in your mercy, with a deep love that you have as a father, would you pour out your love upon all the older sons in the room? And I pray that in the next number of minutes, you would heal or begin to heal some of the deepest hurts and feelings of abandonment and, feel, and all the feelings that we feel when we feel like you've turned away and you're no longer listening. Lord God, would you heal us? And we offer our lives to you and pray that we would see you running out for us. Amen. Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And as we saw last week, the religious leaders don't like the people that Jesus is loving, and these religious leaders are good people. At least they've tried to be. They've tried to be moral people. They've always tried to do the right thing, but in, in their minds, Jesus is welcoming a whole lot of people into the love of God that simply should not be part of the family. The Pharisees and teachers of the law, of course, are the older brother. They are the older son. And Jesus is sharing this story for them. And just so you know, he's sharing this story that he might save them, rescue them, that this group of religious leaders would hear that they too are welcome at the banquet. So we pick up the story as the father has just welcomed his younger rebellious son home. He starts to throw him a massive banquet, but sees that his older son is not at the party. And we will start reading in verse 25. 25 to 28. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. 
When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. All right, look at that first line in verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. Where's the older son? He's doing the right thing. Where are you going to find him? You're going to find him doing the right thing. He's in the right place. He's faithful. He works hard. He's not going to waste his father's money. He is a contributor. He is obedient. But he hears music and dancing. And the servant says to him, Verse 27, your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. What does the older son do with such great news? Well, let me tell you how the movie could end. The older brother is filled with joy. His brother is alive? What? My brother's alive? He goes running into the party. And all is well, and the brothers embrace each other, and they're united, and they enjoy the party. And as if this were a movie, the camera would slowly fade in the evening away from the tent where all the party is happening, and you'd see the glow of the lights below. And as the camera slowly pulls up and away from the party, this joyful soundtrack would begin, and the credits would start to roll, and we would all feel happy, and we would grab what we have left of our popcorn, which we have not finished, and we would walk out of the theater, and we would say, what a great story, Jesus, what a great ending, that was truly a feel-good film. No, that is not the way this story ends. It's not the story Jesus is telling. Verse 28, the older brother became angry. Just pause. What's his first reaction? Anger. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Anger. Why is he angry? From what we know and understand about how inheritance money was divided in Jesus' day, if there were two sons, the older son would have been owed two-thirds of the father's estate and possessions, and the younger son one-third. And the younger son had already taken his one-third. And what did he do with it? He wasted it, shaming his father. More on that next week. Now that the father welcomes the younger son home again as a son and not a slave, and that's important in a number of minutes, upon the eventual death of the father, could it be that he would be owed the one-third all over again? And where do you think that one-third's coming from? The older son sees his inheritance flying out the window. The younger son will get one-third of the remaining two-thirds. The older son, his inheritance just got smaller. And every penny that is now spent on the younger son 
including this banquet, is rightfully his. And T. Wright says, the older brother sees all too clearly that anything now spent on his brother will be coming out of his own inheritance. And so he's angry. The father is wasting good, hard-earned money on his loser of a brother. He's killing the fattened calf. That's the best meat. And he refuses to go into the banquet. Kenneth Bailey, the Bible professor and expert in the Middle East, he says the older son is not going into the banquet as a way to shame his father. That in Jesus' day at this time, and even in the Middle East today, you don't refuse to come into the banquet that your father is hosting if you're the oldest son. And so he refuses to go in and he shames his father. Tim Keller, pastor in New York, said that the younger son has disgraced the father and now it's the older son's turn to disgrace the father. He will not attend the celebration. This is not right. There is an injustice here. Now, watch the father. Watch the father. The father, first of all, notices that his son is not there at the party. He notices, as we looked last week, and we saw last week, he notices when you're not around. The father then goes out to find his older son. To punish him, to beat him, for shaming him? No. The father goes out because he loves his older son. He misses him. The father goes out to plead with his older son to come in, come to the party. When I first saw this years ago, this changed me. I had never seen this, ever, when I read this story. I, I had never seen, I always knew that the father had run out to the younger son. I knew that, but I did not know that the father comes out looking for the older son. He goes out and pleads with the older son with great love. And as we saw last week, this is simply the disposition of the father's heart towards you, to all of us who are distant, angry, bitter sons and daughters. He knows you're missing. He knows your heart has grown cold. He loves you and he intentionally comes out looking for you. You are not forgotten. And so what does the father do? The father meets all anger with a great love. Say that again. The father meets your anger and my anger with a great love. Verses 29 and 30. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. He doesn't address his father with respect. What does he say? Look. Look. The younger son had the decency to call his father father. But the older son has no respect for his father. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Whoa. Pause. 
slaving for you? You're a slave now? Is that what you are? You're no longer a son. You now have a master-slave relationship with your father? I thought you were a son. And, And we can begin to see how the son views himself. He's a slave, and he's the best of slaves. He is a good slave. He is a slave who follows all the rules. Verse 29, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. He's saying this, you you take your rebellious son to the keg and you won't even offer me a trip to McDonald's. That's what what he's saying, right? This is how you pay me back? This is an insult. Verse 30, when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, This son of yours, not my brother. He's not my brother. He's your son. He's your problem. You deal with it. And how does he know about the prostitutes? All we know is that he heard music and dance. How does he know about prostitutes? How could he know that detail? He has not spoken to his brother For all he knew, his brother was dead. Could it be, and some theologians speculate, could it be that he is projecting upon his younger brother what he would have done had he gone off into a far country? He's not going to do that because he's the faithful older son. But he has entertained what he would do if he had done what his younger brother had done. Notice how complicated his heart has become. Notice how cold his heart has become. Cold and complicated. Verses 31 and 32. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And what does the father say to his older boy? He says, my son. Just listen to that. You're not a slave. You're my son. You're you're my boy. You're my child. It's who you are. And you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. It's all yours. It's not mine so that one day it becomes yours. It's yours now. And over all that, you have me. You have my love. Everything I have is yours. And notice the father says, what does he say? And the father, even in his love, he'll teach his older son a lesson. This brother of yours. (laughs) Because the older son said, this son of yours, and how does the father respond? This brother of yours. He's your brother. 
This brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The father has to remind his son, even when his son is trapped in bitterness, that he has a brother and that he is a son. And why is it that you and I, when we are so caught in our elder brother syndrome, you could short EBS, elder brother syndrome, if any of you struggle, just coined that a number of years ago in my head, I was like, okay, EBS, that's what it's called. When we're, when we're struggling with elder brother syndrome, why is it that we immediately forget that we have a brother and that we have a father? Immediately, I'm a slave. That's what I am. It's my identity. That's what I think that I am when I struggle in this elder brother syndrome. So summarizing the parable, Tim Keller writes, quote, the elder brother is not losing the father's love in spite of his goodness, but because of it. It is not his sins that create the barrier between him and his father. It's the pride he has in his moral record. It's not his wrongdoing, but his righteousness that is keeping him from sharing in the feast of the father. How is that possible? How is it possible to get lost while doing the right thing? Because it's possible. And so I say to myself, I'm doing the right thing, right? Someone fact check me, I'm doing the right thing, we say to our friends. And, and, and actually, if I look around me, I don't like what I see in the world. I feel like the moral fabric of our world is torn. I see a breakdown of morals, a watering down of truth, a rise in secularism, an ongoing question, questioning of authority, and I am like, stop, stop. And it stops with me. I commit to doing the right thing. I wanna be the kind of older brother who says, when no one else cares about truth, I'll care about it. And when everyone else questions biblical authority, I'll cherish the Bible. And when anyone else plays fast and loose with sex and gender, I'll be pure and obedient. And when anyone else is deconstructing, I'll boast of the strength of my foundation and double down on my foundation. And when everyone else is whining and lazy, I'll roll up my sleeves and I'll work hard. And on a Sunday morning when I come to church, I'll check chapter and verse while other people are checking their watches for lunch. I'm in. I'm here for the fight. You can count on me to do the right thing. But something is dead in me. But something slowly has died in me. Because slowly I begin to operate as though I'm owed. And one day I wake up and feel so far from the love of my father. But then the pushback is that, yeah, but God, but like, even then, even then, can't you see that I'm a good soldier? Does that count for anything? Has that earned me anything? Because I volunteer so much, and now I get sick. And I read the Bible daily, but I'm the one who loses my job. And I've served for years, but now my parents are splitting up. You see, all of us who struggle with elder brother syndrome, 
It's usually when we go through hardship or play the comparison game where our true colors come out, right? So when I go through hardship, I say, who do you think you are? I don't deserve this. I've given everything to follow you. Now this? Really? Or when I play the comparison game, it sounds like this. Look at them. They have all of that. And yet, I'm the one that's faithful to you. You haven't given me a fraction of what they have. They get all that, and I'm the one suffering for you. And, and so I want to ask to all my elder brother friends in the room, today, what, where's the bitterness and the anger? Frederick Buechner, in Telling the Truth, writes, quote, the fattened calf, the best scotch, the hoedown could have all been his too, any time he asked for them, except that he never thought to ask for them because he was too busy trying cheerlessly and religiously to earn them. And, and we're blind to the love of the Father right in front of us. And we don't know what the, what's the option? I mean, what are we supposed to do? Become like the younger brother now? Like, and have this big turn in our life and then come back to Jesus moment? And it's like, that's not how we operate. So we're going to keep doing the right thing. But inwardly, we continue to die, Right? And I know God loves my younger brother, but does he love me? It was really interesting. Um, in kind of the middle of the pandemic, it was December 2020. Um, I've told you the story before. Uh, for those of you who come to North Langley, I um, was seeking some counseling and uh, met with this great counselor um, who pointed out something new in the story of the prodigal son. Uh, and I was like, no way. <laughs> you know, I feel like I've read it a thousand times, like um, classic elder brother. You're not going to point something out that's new to me, right? I, I know this story. <laughs> You're not going to tell me anything new in this story. And the counselor, he's brilliant, and he did. And he said, Matthew, notice that when the father goes out to the older son, he lets him rage. And he listens. And the older son pours out his frustration. And, and the father listens and responds with, my son. And this is probably my favorite character in the scriptures because he's me. And there's a deep, there's a Mrs. Turpin inside of me <laughs> that has yet to be healed. And God in his goodness has given me moments, and I hope some of you will have a moment like that this morning, or in the next few weeks, or in the next few months, where you are reminded of the love of God. There have been a few moments where God has had to come, and he's had to stare me in the face and say, you're my son. And uh, there's numerous stories I could tell, but I, I just, I'm going to leave it there because 
I want you to hear that the great joke of it all, the cosmic joke in a beautiful way, it's what Frederick Buechner writes as the comedy, the great comedy of the gospel, is that despite all of what we feel as elder brothers, despite all of it, the thing that should cause us the deepest joy is that the Father loves us, has always loved us, and will always love us. And the question is, do you believe that? Do you believe the Father loves you? That he has loved you? That he always will love you? Not because of your slave work, but because you're his child. If only all of us older sons could hear John's encouragement in 1 John 3, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we would be called children of God, and that is what we are. And so what does John say? He says, see, look. The problem with older brothers is we're not looking. And so I want you to see three things, and if you only remember three things this morning, these are the three I want you to remember. Number one, the Father misses you and comes out looking for you. And number two, the Father will listen to your lament and your frustration. And number three, he calls you his son, his daughter, and reminds you that everything he has is yours. I believe those are the three things you need to hear today. For we who are older sons need to keep hearing again and again that the love of the Father is for us. That no matter what hardship we go through, everything the Father has has always been ours. Everything is ultimately right in front of us. Why? Because he's right in front of us. And if you'll notice, Jesus' parable ends with a cliffhanger. What will the older son do? What will the Pharisees do? What will you do? Well, in his brilliant storytelling, he leaves it in your court. You and I will need to answer that. Will we come into the banquet? Will we come and be reconciled to our brother and receive the love of our father? Listen to Romans 8. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. That is my hope for this morning. As we are about to worship, my hope is that the Spirit of God would testify with your spirit that you are the beloved of the Father, that you're God's child. As we saw last week, that word Abba is just the Aramaic term for Papa, Daddy, Dad. And the Holy Spirit reveals that we are dearly loved children, no longer slaves, but children. And so I was wondering if we could stand together here and we're going to pray. And Romans 5 reminds us that God's love 
has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So there's no amount of preaching or worship leading or any of it that can directly communicate that love to you. It is a work of the Spirit, and so we're going to pray that the Holy Spirit would communicate his love deep within you, that he would pour bucket loads of the love of the Father upon you today. Our prayer team is going to be available, as they always are. So here at the front or in the back, and just so you know, it can be as simple as, I want to know the love of my Father. That's it. I want to know the love of my Father. As we end, the words of Keith Green have been ringing in my ears. He sings, my eyes are dry, my faith is old, my heart is hard, my prayers are cold, and I know how I ought to be alive to you and dead to me. But what could be done with an old heart like mine? Soften it up with oil and wine. The oil is you, your spirit of love. Please wash me anew in the wine of your blood. And so, holy God, we pray you would come and move among us. All of us older sons, older sons and daughters who are struggling with hearts that are cold. What could you do with old hearts like ours? Would you soften them again with your oil and your wine? The Spirit of God, the oil is you. Just pour out your spirit of love upon us. Make us tender again. Wash us in the wine of your blood, Jesus. Remind us that we're forgiven, we're deeply loved, that the cross was for us older sons as well. And it's all grace. And would you make us soft again? And would you fill us with your love again? And would you make our callous hearts just softened and in tune with you? So, oh, deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, would you roll as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me? Just come, Lord Jesus. We're waiting, and we love you. Amen.